right, I'd like to call the October 9th, 2023 regular meeting of the Shoreline City Council to order. Will you please join me in the flag salute? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Will the clerk please call the roll? Mayor Scully. Present. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Here. Councilmember Ramsdale. Present. Councilmember Mark. Here. Councilmember McConnell. Here. Councilmember Poby. Present. Councilmember Roberts. Here. Next up is approval of the agenda. Are there any changes to the proposed agenda? Right. Seeing none, the proposed agenda is adopted unanimously. Next up is the report of the city manager, Mr. Ellington. Yes, Mayor and Council. The final two dates are coming up this Friday and Sunday to participate in our Artists in Residence Experimental Documentary. Please join Salome MC at the Art Cottage at Richmond Beach Saltwater Park to add your vision to the documentary, either on or off camera. All ages are welcome. Learn more about the project at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar. Start your Saturday with a shoreline walk exploring points of interest in the Parkwood, Highland Terrace, and Westminster neighborhoods, including two of Shoreline's smallest parks. There's no need to sign up. Just meet walk leader Dan at the Parkwood Plaza parking lot behind the Starbucks. This walk is 3.4 miles and is rated as moderate for length. Learn more and see other upcoming walks at shorelinewa.gov forward slash shoreline walks. Mark your calendar for our annual Hamlin Halloween haunt. Join us on Friday, October 20th from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Hamlin Park. Listen to spooky songs and stories along a campfire, ride the hay wagon, play Halloween games, and more family-friendly spooky fun. Dress for the weather and bring a flashlight. Learn more at shorelinewa.gov forward slash haunt. And we don't have any board or commission meetings coming up this week, so we'll be back here next Monday. Agendas and information on how to participate in public meetings are available on the city's website. That concludes the city manager's report. Thank you, Mr. Arlington. Next up is council reports. Are there any council reports? Councilor Mark. Thank you, Mayor. I attended two different events uh, last week. I attended the uh, regional water quality meeting where it was what was discussed was primarily associated with um, stormwater and wastewater and how to improve the water quality in the sound. 0.9 billion gallons are emitted from wastewater. 118 billion gallons are emitted from stormwater. We can see why we have to work with stormwater if we're going to improve the quality of sound. Second one I attended was the K4C, where we talked about um, different legislative things that we could do to help improve the environment. Thank you. Thank you. Any other council reports? I attended the groundbreaking of the Wood Partners building up on North City. It is our first mandatory commercial first floor mixed-use residential. And as I told them, they said two words that made my heart sing, which is restaurant ready. Part of that first floor will be able to accommodate a restaurant, which is what they're replacing and what I think the, the residents of that neighborhood will be happy to, to see go in. Also attended the Republic of China ceremony, which was fantastic and very loud. Next up is public comments. This is an opportunity for members of the public to address us on any item on the agenda or of concern. We ask that folks limit themselves to three minutes and introduce themselves by name and city of residence. I know we have one signed up remotely. Do we have any signed up in person? No one has signed up in person. All right, so Mr. Blackwell, whenever you're ready. 
Hello, this is Derek Blackwell. I live nearby the Madeira Project on Linden Avenue. I'm speaking about the neighborhood concern for traffic hazards with the finished design of the project, which is planned to have only one driveway connecting to the garage of this huge building. On September 8th, I included council in an email to city staff. Several neighbors added detailed comments. We received only one reply from Kate Lee. I replied a few days later, and since nobody has replied again, I'm going to read you part of what I sent. I boiled down the problems to 15 points. Tonight I'm starting in the middle with point number eight. I'll start one next week. This is in response to the deviation for driveway access to Madeira. Point eight, because of the expected high socioeconomic status of the intended residents, there would be a high number of delivery vehicles double parked on Linden Avenue North, Amazon, Uber Eats, etc., especially at PM peak hours. There are few options for evening meals within easy walking distance, Euro Shop and possibly Wendy's a quarter mile away. The purported walkability score of 74 in the traffic impact analysis is a gross exaggeration. Point nine, although delivery vehicles are not mentioned in this deviation request, the SEPA checklist states, the secondary access south of the building would be for emergency access deliveries and move in, move out. This is a farcical statement. Amazon delivery vehicles are typically about 25 feet long and would not have adequate room to turn around in the south driveway. Drivers would not likely reverse to exit or enter. Uh, since they are on the clock, they would much more likely double park on Linden Avenue North. Uh, this view was suggested to me by Tricia Junkie, a director of public works during a phone call in November. She stated this is what Amazon trucks do in her neighborhood. I concur. Uh, point 10, uh, because of points eight and nine, northbound vehicles on Linden Avenue North would frequently be caught behind double parked delivery vehicles whether or not traffic volume is low or high. This would pose a danger for emergency responders. Because of the lack of speed bumps and the narrow width of the street, it would be hazardous for vehicles in motion to pass standing vehicles. Since this same route would be used by most drivers heading to Brea, due north of here by 600 feet, this traffic danger uh, would be severely exacerbated and encouraged by the 477 car garage proposed at Brea, uh, which also has more parking spaces than units. Uh, the cumulative impact of Brea has been inadequately considered. This situation could be eased by allowing resident access from the southern driveway to the garage so fewer drivers are not needlessly waiting for delivery vehicles to clear the way. Thank you for hearing me and thank you for all you do in these difficult times. Thank you, Mr. Blackwell. Is there anyone else in person who would like to address us during public comments? All right, seeing none, we'll close the public comment period. Next up is the consent calendar, Deputy Mayor. I move approval of the consent calendar. Second, then. Will the clerk please call the vote? Councilmember Povey. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Councilmember Roberts. Aye. Councilmember Mork. Aye. Mayor Scully. Aye. Consent calendar passes unanimously. Next up is study item 8A, which is a discussion with the King County Regional Homelessness Authority on development of the North King County sub-regional plan, as well as the status of the interlocal agreement. Looks like we have Ms. Wolbert done from our staff, along with Ms. Van Abema and Mr. Herbig from K uh, KCRAJ.
thank you. Um, again, my name is Bethany Wabrechtan. I'm the city's community services manager, and uh, my guests and I are here today to talk about some updates from the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. Um, I have a few intro slides, and then we'll be able to move right on to the meat of the presentation, which I know you'll all be very interested in. So just as a reminder, KCRHA was formed by an interlocal agreement between uh, the city of Seattle and King County. And uh, as part of one of our council goals, um, the council let staff know they wanted us to look to site a shelter in North King County. Um, from that, we brought together the North King County Coalition on Homelessness. And uh, one of the results of that was the opening of the Oaks Shelter on April 1st in 2021. Uh, and through that work with the King County, uh, North King County Coalition on Homelessness and working with our other uh, four North End cities, uh, the city of Shoreline, uh, along with those other cities, entered an interlocal for homelessness services with KCRHA in December of 2022. And this update is part of uh, their commitment to provide outreach and updates on data uh, and other um, activities at KCRHA to all of the councils that have signed on to that interlocal agreement. So again, about that interlocal agreement, uh, it is between KCRHA and the cities of Shoreline, Lake Forest Park, Kenmore, Bothell, and Woodenville. And we were the first sub-area, and I believe the only sub-area to date to sign on to that uh, interlocal in the North End. From that, um, two main uh, driving factors in that, and they take place in matching with our bienniums. In 2023, the biennium that we're currently in, the funding that was decided by each of the councils is exactly how it's being implemented uh, with the programs in the community. And for Shoreline, it's outlined in the staff report, but it's about $100,000. And again, that is exactly the uh, projects that you uh, as a council approved uh, a little over, a, well, about a year ago as part of our 2023-2024 Human Services Plan. Secondly, for the second of that four-year process in the 25-26 biennium, uh, the projects that will be funded will be determined by KCRHA and the direction of that North King County sub-regional plan that they're currently working on. And with that, I will turn it over to my KCRHA colleagues, and I'll gracefully try to move the mic over. Mayor, Council Members, my, uh, for the record, my name is Nigel Herbig. I'm the Intergovernmental Relations Manager for the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. With me is our uh, East King County um, Sub-Regional Planner, uh, Planning Manager, I believe is the title, for, um, uh, Mallory Van Abema, sorry. Good evening. Um, we really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Uh, so we're going to go over a few different topics here. We're going to go through the North King County Sub-Regional Plan. Uh, the North King County ILA, uh, 2023 data reporting, and North King County severe weather RFP. Uh, first, we're going to discuss briefly the five-year plan. Uh, so the inter-local agreement um, that was that formed uh, KCRHA did require us to pass a five-year uh, plan. And that work started uh, back in fall of 2022. Um, well, actually, summer 2022, we did a, a lot of community outreach. We talked to councils, we talked to human services um, managers, we talked to providers all over the county, and collected a lot of information about where the current state of the um, of the homelessness of homelessness services across the county. 
using what we gathered uh, in the summer, in the fall we produced, uh, we started working on a draft. That went public uh, in January of this year for feedback. We received thousands of comments. We received comments from probably every city in the, uh, in the county. Um, and led to a restructuring of the plan to be a little bit more concrete and focus on concrete actions. So the restructured plan identified 77 activities, a three-pronged approach, and one overall goal. And it was, uh, the plan was then approved unanimously by our two boards in May and June of this year. So the one overall goal is to end unsheltered homelessness um, and bring people inside in ways that meet their needs. It aligns with the formal charge of the authority, which is to kind of oversee the crisis response system for homelessness in King County, um, and emphasizes our need to come together, be uh, aligned and coordinated in these efforts um, if we're going to be successful in that. I mentioned a three-pronged approach. Uh, ultimately, we're working to build a homeless um, response system where individual providers are uh, resourced to carry out their work um, and are well coordinated with peer agencies to have the capacity to contribute uh, data to the system, operate in subregions across the county, and offer services that address the needs of folks who hold identities that are disproportionately represented uh, among our homeless population. And we also want to ensure that there are strong connections between the systems to provide supportive transition for folks to avoid unnecessary harm and slipping through the gaps um, between institutions. So that's a really high-level high overview of the five-year plan. I'm going to pass it over to Mallory to discuss sub-regional planning. Thanks, Nigel. Good evening. Uh, really nice to be here with you, though. I uh, just would also offer clarification. My uh, job title is East King County Sub-Regional Planning Specialist. However, I would uh, stress you to consider me kind of a floater when it comes to sub-regional planning activities. Um, I cover the north, the east, and Snoqualmie Valley. Uh, so just so that we can set the record straight on that. Um, so Nigel has kind of laid the groundwork here for our five-year plan, uh, mentioned that there are 77 activities in the plan that will need operationalizing, and we will be uh, designing 30 of those um, specifically into the North King County sub-regional plans. These are things that require a local nuance, um, a consideration of the existing resources in North King County, um, and will be um, completely covered step-by-step -step, um, in the North King County sub-regional plan. We're excited uh, to strengthen our partnership with the North Urban Human Services Alliance and host a workshop to really crank out the specific metrics on how we're measuring success for those 30 activities um, and also to refine the action steps themselves. So each step that we take to make progress on each of those activities that will be in the plan. Uh, plan is under draft right now, but once we have that feedback from the workshop uh, later, likely this month or early next month, uh, we're excited to come back with a draft of the plan in quarter four, um, quarter four, that should say, yes it does, Q4 of 2023. Uh, I did want to share just kind of a structural overview of what you can expect. Um, you can kind of loosely consider these chapters in the North King County plan. Um, it will have an introductory landscape of the existing services. Uh, we will then also provide background on historical funding that has gone into homelessness response from North King County and from the county sources as well. Uh, we will have a section of the plan that is specifically derived from folks who have lived experience of homelessness in the North King County subregion uh, to really offer some insight that is um, really invaluable and is something that we are very fundamentally committed to centering um, at KCRHA. 
Uh, we will also be identifying um, and have gone through the process really to identify existing gaps in services um, and needs that have been expressed from folks with lived experiences and um, also from providers directly. Uh, this will also transition to numbers five and six, which are kind of what I mentioned with the workshop upcoming. Those are the 30 activities with action steps related and then those time-bound metrics. Um, so we're holding ourselves accountable. This will be publicly available so folks can make sure that as an agency we are held accountable in a very transparent way. I uh, did want to also offer an update. I think the last time that our team was here was in May, so that was pre-five-year plan passage. Uh, but a lot has happened since May. So the North King County Interlocal Agreement, a quick kind of progress update for you all. Uh, we have squared away all uh, partners' tax documentation. Everything is lined up. We have gotten our invoicing structure in place so that the six providers that we currently are um, holding funds for on behalf of the North King County cities uh, can bill us for the services they're providing. We've also um, ensured that one of the providers, which was an agency we hadn't previously been contracted with, was set up in our grants management system, which is called Flux. Um, and I, as I mentioned, there's six providers that are funded through the North King County ILA. Um, and we've also got the very exciting investment into a severe weather response for the North King County corridor so we can get a provider um, who can offer that very critical service um, when we have severe weather events um, and sheltering overnight. So thank you all, because that really was council-led, so thank you. Uh, so here's just a, a download of the existing providers that we hold contracts with now on behalf of the North King County cities uh, who are servicing this area. So the new provider to our portfolio is HopeLink. Uh, we had an existing kind of partial relationship with HopeLink through our emergency housing voucher program, uh, but now we officially hold a contract with HopeLink. Um, all the other providers you see here, I will note that Porchlight is uh, Congregations for the Homeless. They've made a transition in their name, so if you're not familiar with Porchlight, uh, they are Congregations for the Homeless. Uh, but these are all providers uh, previously, aside from HopeLink, that we had existing contractual relationships with, so there wasn't an extensive amount of kind of onboarding and introduction to that flux uh, grants management system and really the invoicing process of working with KCRJ. So as a commitment uh, to council of uh, giving some background on the existing demographics that we're seeing, uh, you'll see this acronym here. It's the Homeless Management Information System, or HMIS. Uh, the Regional Homelessness Authority is responsible for administrating uh, that entire program, um, and it does offer us some kind of snapshots into who is accessing uh, programs within the King County Homelessness Response System. Uh, so we're here to give you a little bit of a readout on uh, who we've seen in the last quarter. So this is countywide. Uh, one of our data points is the city that you were last stably housed in. Um, I will say off the bat that it's really difficult to get very accurate numbers and, and data on folks um, who are moving around and getting services wherever they can. Uh, a lot of folks are in a survival mindset um, in that state, and so wanted to start with kind of the full picture of the countywide numbers. Um, this is folks who have enrolled in a program that is participating in HMIS or has HMIS access. So you encounter uh, someone at a day center and they're enrolled in that day center program and that kind of comes up on their profile. Uh, so the city of last stable housing, it's a data point. Uh, again, I'll just stress, it's, it's not a perfect data point to de determine someone was you know, housed right before they entered a shelter or a day center program. Um, it's just the self-reported uh, last stable housing situation that someone finds themselves in. So you can see this is from late August. These polls are from late August. I'll just say that up top. 
uh, we had 42,632 individuals uh, enrolled in HMIS participating programs. So when you scope into the North King County subregion, so from Shoreline over to Woodenville, uh, we have 648 people who are enrolled in HMIS participating programs. You can see the breakdowns here. Coordinated entry is the largest bar at 277 folks. That is your one-stop shop. It's also a data system that we uh, manage at KCRIJ. That is where you go to get connected to housing, uh, trans transitional housing, permanent housing, permanent supportive housing, um, also resources such as rapid rehousing. But it's kind of the entry point to uh, enrollment in other programs and being referred to other resources. Uh, a little bit of background, gender identity-wise, we have a fairly equal split between folks who identify as male or as female. Um, some folks, can you can refuse, certainly, to answer any of these questions when you're initially enrolled in a program. Uh, but there is not a, a glaring disparity uh, really anywhere on the gender spectrum that we're noticing in North King County. Uh, demographics for North King County, so majority of folks who are being served, 317 according to late August, uh, were identified as white. Uh, we have an overrepresentation of black or African American folks in the North King County corridor who are accessing these programs. And I think it's very important to note also that these smaller numbers as you're going down the graph, uh, they, seem, they seem small. However, uh, we're here on Indigenous Peoples Day and I think I'd be remiss to not mention that Black, African-American, indigenous people particularly are dramatically overrepresented in our homeless population as compared to their proportional representation uh, in the general public. So it's, a, it's very critical that we have some approaches and services that are kind of culturally responsive um, and tailored to the needs of folks who are uh, attempting to act those, access those resources. Uh, breakdown on the ages of folks. This is a very funky scale, so you'll notice at the bottom it says 0 to 17. Um, and unfortunately, it's not ascending in a natural way. I think it was just a visual instinct of the table making that it wanted to be pretty like that. Uh, but 0 to 17 are going to be, they're largely unaccompanied youth um, or, or young, very young people um, who are enrolling in, in programs. There's not currently a youth shelter in North King County. Uh, but again, this is just a reference back to where someone was last stably housed. They were referenced here. They don't, they're not necessarily accessing services in North King County right now. Um, but then we go up the next bar from the bottom, uh, 65 or above. This is what we would consider our elder population. Uh, so there are some programs that exist in King County that kind of are tailored to address the needs of, of folks who are in, in, in a state, in elder state. Uh, but the majority of those graphs, uh, 35 to 64, are adults. They're kind of general population adults. The one other uh, bar that I would point out is that 73 people who fall in between 18 to 24 years old, those are considered young adults. Uh, so many of the programs that exist, uh, for instance, Friends of Youth, uh, Youth Care, they operate multiple programs that are specifically designed to serve people who are young adults, many of whom are transitioning uh, out of foster care and are exiting programs that offer additional resources. Um, so it's really kind of a critical intervention point. All right, so we also are capturing when people are enrolling in HMIS uh, veteran status. So in North King County, we do have 60 people in the database that indicated that they are a veteran. Um, there is interest in kind of getting more granular because some resources are exclusively for folks who are honorably discharged. 
Uh, housing is a great example of that. Uh, but it does, you know, there's a presence uh, of veterans in our community who are experiencing homelessness and are looking to access um, services. So we did also want to share some performance outcomes. So we have a side-by-side -side here. Um, this is looking specifically at exits to permanent housing. And so on the left, um, you'll see the 2021 figures. So we had a total of unique individuals. So that's kind of reducing any duplication that might be reported in the system. If someone is entered into our program over here and here, there's some consolidation that happens to make sure we're not double reporting. Um, so 819 people were entered into an HMIS participating program in 2021. Uh, 120 of those exited into permanent housing. And then when you look at 2022, uh, 750 people uh, with 124 exiting to permanent housing. And now I'm going to take us to a more current comparative, which offers the green bar. Um, and you would be right along with me if you notice that the green bar is uh, lower than the other preceding years. Um, and I would offer some background onto why that is. The American Rescue Plan Act uh, opened up a very Im important and unprecedented resource called the Emergency Housing Voucher Program. So this brought 900 vouchers directly to King County Housing Authority that we partnered with them and all of the providers that I listed before, those six providers received EHVs as we call them. Uh, these are 10-year housing subsidy vouchers. They're essentially the golden ticket, Section 8 ticket that people wait years and years and years on wait lists uh, to get access to. They are very scarce, but this dramatic investment from the American Rescue Plan Act moved thousands of people in our community and many, many, many households into housing. So when you're seeing that year-over-year -year comparison of 21 and 22 looking a lot better than where we're at, uh, in 2023, it's just important to know that resource was was time limited, and we were the top performing market uh, for the entire nation around emergency housing vouchers. So, particularly King County Housing Authority, uh, fa fantastic partners, and there really was only about 2,400 for the entire state of Washington, and King County Housing Authority directly received um, with us at our partnership. 900 of those uh, to distribute out to the community. So it made a huge dent in the amount of people who had access to a resource that could be used on the private market um, and, and also transitioned to project-based uh, subsidies and, and project-based subsidies so that are embedded into an existing building. Um, so that is a, a, a very different uh, kind of trajectory that you'll see year over year from 21, 22, and 23. Um, and I hope that it everyone who's listening at home and everyone that is here this evening recognizes that as a subtle call for uh, some, some pressure to increase investment into a program such as the Emergency Housing Voucher Program, which was administered by HUD. So it's a federal program, but we are working hard on uh, getting some reallocated vouchers that have been underutilized from other states. Uh, now I wanted to transition a bit and just talk briefly about the fact that today the North King County Severe Weather RFP application period closed. Um, so I'll share a bit on the timeline, but I think just a moment of celebration. Uh, there's funding for a severe weather response in the North End. We're really grateful for all of the leadership of the North King County cities, all your staff, um, and the North King County Coalition on Homelessness for being just tireless advocates for uh, severe weather response that's, uh, you know, led by a provider who is qualified to do the hard work of bringing folks inside who may not necessarily come inside unless there's snow on the ground or there's very extreme uh, weather conditions outside. 
Um, it's a really kind of fleeting opportunity sometimes to capture folks who are maybe more service averse or uh, apprehensive uh, enrolling in a program. So really excited to see that uh, come together. And a quick background on where we're at timeline-wise. So the notice of funding availability for the severe weather RFP uh, was posted on September 15th. We have had a uh, listening session, uh, kind of a, an FAQ session that was recorded and sent out to folks. Uh, the application period closes today at midnight. Uh, so there's been a lot of effort to kind of blanket this in the community and make sure that any interested providers uh, would apply. And then we'll be going through the process of working with a Raider panel review, which will be folks who are representative of the North King County area and likely um, have been involved in, in this kind of work um, in some capacity. But anyone is eligible to apply. You can do so on our website. There's a, a funding opportunities webpage, and you can find Raider panel uh, interest forms to submit your interests, not just for this funding opportunity, uh, but for subsequent, subsequent ones as well. So folks will be notified if they are awarded or if their proposal was denied uh, by the 31st of October. And the anticipated uh, development timeline for an actual contract with one to two providers, because we're, we're poised to potentially award two agencies, should there be two competitive applications, uh, is anticipated for November 1st. And I did put a couple asterisks there just because we, uh, I think many may be familiar. Uh, it's challenging right now for service providers, and so many are kind of you know, operating with the, the limited bandwidth uh, and really uh, challenged to imagine taking on another uh, body of work in addition to the work that they're already doing uh, in their services. So we're, we're hopeful uh, and I don't have any additional background on who has applied as of this moment since we're not at the deadline quite yet until a few hours from now, uh, but we're excited to come back and let you know um, how that's shaped up and to work closely with your staff so you're privy to all that information. That is all for us. We have a fabulous QR code now, so you can easily find us on all of the platforms, and we'd encourage you to sign up for our uh, newsletters, which are really informative and can give you a little bit of a sneak in uh, look at uh, events that are coming up and bodies of work, funding opportunities, all sorts of things. Uh, but with that, I will turn it over and really welcome your thoughts, discussion, or questions about this work. Questions or comments from Council? Uh, Councilmember Ramsdahl, I looked at you first. Uh, uh, thank you, Mayor. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, I have a, a question about the uh, the severe weather uh, shelter. I know St. Dunstan's, I think, was the location for the severe weather shelter in uh, Shoreline up until last uh, year, and 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 kind of wondering what what what. what why was that shelter closed? Um, and then what was learned from that experience? And then what, what, what will we bring in um, you know, from those lessons learned? What will change um, in, for the upcoming winter shelter? Thanks. Great question, thank you. Um, so that was, I believe, our fourth year operating the shelter, my third year being involved. The first year we were at the old uh, police station on 185th, and then we were fortunate enough in uh, 2020 during the pandemic to uh, access that space at St. Dunstan's. They did that very graciously at, at no cost. Um, and we worked really closely with NUSA and, um, you know, in in you know in works with our other uh, partners in the area um, to get volunteers. Uh, the city of Shoreline trained them. We paid for their background checks. Um, 
We had a volunteer coordinator that was excellent. Uh, we got support for supplies from NUSA as well as uh, we also at the city bought supplies. And another important piece is we did work with Lake City Partners and uh, had their outreach person or other staff that would be able to come to the shelter for two to three hours at night and then in the morning. Um, what that did is a lot of times that uh, outreach person would actually know some of our guests there um, based on their work in the community on the streets. And they also just had a real calming presence and were able to, uh, again, work with volunteers who this is not their day job, this is just a love of community and of this population. Um, but what we noticed in the last, um, well, two things this last season, it was a really hard, long winter. We could have been activated, I think, 29 nights or 26 nights. We were only able to open 25. Uh, there was a night where there was no power. I think we recall that time there was uh, no power there. Um, and we did, uh, just for staffing, uh, we weren't able to get volunteers too many nights in a row uh, that we had to operate. We did some lift vouchering where we had the outreach person and a couple of volunteers um, at that location, able to put individuals in lifts to the shelters if they wished to downtown. Um, what we did notice, however, the biggest change is the level of acuity that were entering the shelter from the guests, whether that was due to fentanyl or other drug um, interactions that was happening um, for the safety of staff, for the safety of the building. Um, it just became really clear that it was probably beyond the um, scope that we could ask for um, a volunteer, even though a lot of them are, are very willing, and, and, and it wasn't the church either. They were really um, great partners in this, and they're up for great service to their community. Um, it became clear in talking with NUSA and others that we really needed to move to a more professional service model, which is how we got here. Um, I can say we've been working very closely, meeting regularly with uh, representation from KCRHA as well as the other cities and um, coming to an understanding that it's something we need to work together on. Um, it could be that it ends up at St. Dunstan's. It could be that it ends up somewhere along the 522 corridor. Something we have put in the RFP is um, that there be a uh, hotel vouchering as part of this so that if one of our uh, first responders comes upon a person and it's kind of determined that, oh, this person just needs to get inside for tonight, we can make that happen. So again, we're, we're operating this large area from Shoreline to Woodenville, and so we wanted to try to get to the best place that we could that could serve the entire North End. Um, so we are excited to see what comes out of that. Um, we are making a request in the mid-buy for funding to support this as well. Because um, it's it's been something we've just sort of made room for in our budget because it's so important. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Councilor Popey. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, first of all, it's impressive to, ha uh, to see that you are partnering with NUSA because the North End needs that. And also, I know uh, Porsche Light, so I was very happy to see them in there. I'm looking at the data, 2021, you were able to get 120 people to exit into permanent housing. And then 2022, you got 124. That's just four. In addition, that's about 3.3%. So I'm just wondering what, what was done wrong, because I was ex expecting an exponential growth, but we are not seeing that. Are they lacking resources to make that happen? Or what is what's the cause of that? 
That's very low. It is very low. It's a great, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, and I think I'll do my best and maybe lean on Nigel to also jump in. But uh, our full kind of actual startup as an agency really kicked off in earnest in 2022. That's when we absorbed all of our contracts from King County and from the city of Seattle, uh, who signed the interlocal agreement to establish us as a government agency in 2019. Uh, but 2020 happened, um, and we basically began to staff up in uh, mid-2021 with those 2022 contracts coming over. Uh, so I think we had that transitionary period of assuming uh, administrative role for funding that had previously, uh, from the provider perspective, you had two different bodies you were reporting to. Um, I think that was, that was positive, uh, but I think that it's been... Uh, a transitionary period really for 2022 and this year uh, we've gotten gone through a lot of kind of growing pains and uh, better uh, kind of internally looked to assess where we had some uh, bottlenecks and where people were getting hung up and stuck in programs for an extended period of time and not transitioning out uh, and that's definitely been kind of laid out in our five-year plans there are specific activities related to service model types that we've seen be really effective and that people have personally elevated as these are models that we want to see such as emergency housing instead of a um, emergency shelter that is a congregate model uh, but not I don't want to say instead of because we kind of need everything uh, we need every tool that is available. Uh, we have a very much a crisis on our hands, uh, but we are uh, making specific progress on elevating programs that people say works for them and that we're seeing from data can move people into permanent housing uh, stably on a long-term basis. Uh, so not a specific answer directly to your point or your question. I don't know if you have anything to add, Nigel. But yeah, I mean, like Mallory said, <clears throat> We're largely right now um, administering the same pile of money that was being administered by other agencies previous. So we are being more efficient with that. But also, I think the place where you'll really see um, performance pickup is, is once we start working on rebidding the system. So right now, we've got the five-year plan, and we're working on individual sub-regional plans for different parts of the county. All that is going to feed into a um, tiered rebid of the system to reflect those plans. Um, so we won't just be carrying on with all of the previous contracts and all of the previous models. We'll be using what we've learned over the last couple of years to um, build something that is more efficient and performs better. But that's going to take a few years also. All this is frustratingly slow, and I will totally, you know, and, you know, I, I'm with you on this. We like to get everybody inside. Um, but without a huge infusion of, of new cash into the system, um, you know, that, that isn't possible immediately. We do appreciate, of course, you know, North King County coming together, and we do appreciate some of the new funding that's coming together for the, um, for the RFP, the severe weather RFP. That is going to make a difference. But does that answer your question? Deputy yes. Mayor. Thank you. Um, so how much more awesome is the North King County subregion from all the others? I'm very biased. We're so but I biased. Think the best. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. I really appreciated um, just the work and the way that the group has come together and the collaboration that's happened over the last couple of years. I mean, it came together quickly. Um, they've stayed incredibly focused. I am always impressed by just the individuals who serve on that um, that committee and their ideas, their creativity. And so, thank you for just being part of that group and supporting us. Um, <clears throat> looking at those numbers. Um, 
and I'm, I'm bringing a little bit of my experience in my day job to this as well with sheltering. And it's, it didn't bother me so much. And so I wonder if this is applicable. The people who are easiest to house are the first to transition, right? And so as, or the, and so as that number gets smaller, it actually gets harder. It gets harder because there are additional supports. It's gonna slow down. There are additional resources that are going to be needed and um, just roadblocks to overcome. So I, that, does that speak to the experience that's happening here? Yes, I heard that we need more of the golden tickets um, and more funding into those programs, but is there any of that going on as well? I don't want to um, uh, preview too much, but we have been at work also on our human services strategic plan and kind of our initial data that we're getting or the initial feedback from everyone is affordable housing. And so I think as you loosen up parts of the system, you have to kind of include all types of housing. Um, as Mallory mentioned, we need all types of shelter and we kind of need to figure out what's the best first step. Because in some cases it can be diversion, right? You get someone in and you're like, wait a minute, you have an income, you just had a, a, an expensive two months with your car broke down and, and you lost your job, but you have a job again. If we can just give you $1,000, or pay this, you're good. Um, we don't want that person to enter a congregate shelter or even an enhanced shelter because they don't have other um, needs, you know, other case management or behavioral health or other things. So um, just like, like I said, hearkening back to what we're hearing uh, initially with the Herman Services Plan is working also kind of outside of this, but just on affordable housing as council has discussed many times as well. So that will be something we're looking at closer on how to be more effective in that area as well. Uh, I think one addition I would offer is uh, actually a reference back to what Bethany mentioned regarding the folks that we're uh, seeing at the severe weather shelter in North King County and the higher acuity level uh, of folks in the community. So very much, Deputy Mayor, to your point, uh, folks do have complex needs uh, when the number is whittled down and those that are easiest to house are housed. We're left with a really complex situation that each individual pe person needs kind of person-centered approaches around. Um, I would also point to Nigel's uh, slide around those three prongs of the five-year plan. So we looked at individual providers, making sure they have what they need, making sure that our network of providers are talking to each other, they're connected. Um, and then the third prong, which I think is really applicable, is the system-to-system -system connections or system partnerships. So like you all and North King County with the RACER program, like the collaboration between first responders, behavioral health professionals, uh, you know, social workers, uh, you know, hospitals. We have a litany of different systems that we're recognizing touch on someone's life that is experiencing homelessness at different moments, and there is not much bridging that is happening, aside from, this is a great example, racer up in the North End. Um, so I think we're very intent also on building those bridges between the systems and making sure we're not missing folks as they're discharging from the hospital out to the street or whatever the situation may be. Uh, but yeah, I think that's all that I'd add in re regards to that. And I would just add one more thing too. Um, I, I heard people talking about whittling down the problem and I really wish we actually were whittling down the problem. Right now we are housing, and I'm gonna get the figures wrong so don't quote this because I don't have it in front of me. But I think you know we're seeing 
6,000 or 6,600 people, you know, exiting the homelessness system every year. At the same time, we're seeing much more than that entering into the system every year. And so that input-output problem is very real, and I wish we were whittling down. I, I really do. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, it is growing every year because of the lack of affordable housing. So. We, we do talk about that often here in Shoreline is how to stem the tide of folks entering homelessness and we have programs and, um, and, and it's our intention to do what we can. Um, we'll be discussing that in meetings to come. Um, I, Bethany mentioned the $100,000 that is the, you know, the Shoreline budget. I think we all would like to see that number significantly higher. Um, and then, so maybe I'll just give you a chance to say that um, you know, why should we feel really good about putting more money into this system and this structure that has been created and gone through some changes recently? I mean, I think what North King County right now is doing is a model for us for the rest of the county. Um, it's and I think we've seen this in other places like Mallory said with Racer and with the Regional Crisis Center. Cities coming together and working together produces better results and us all working regionally produces better results. The dollars that are coming in right now as part of the um, part of the ILA and for the um, for the severe weather is covering a need that would not be would not be being covered, frankly, uh, with you know everything that happened last year and then the discontinua discontinuation of St. Dunstan's, unfortunately. Um, so because cities are coming together and willing to step up, people will be able to get outside, get inside when the weather gets nasty in a couple of months. Um, I, you know, I, I, uh, that is going to save people's lives. So I hope that that answers your question a little bit. Um, you know, it is a drop in the bucket, but it's an important drop in the bucket and it's going to save people's lives in North King County. Thank you. Councilor Roberts. Sorry. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> No, go, go, go ahead. I was just apologizing because I overlooked Councilmember McConnell, but that's not your problem. Proceed. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mayor. Um, I appreciate everything you've said, and um, I know that our council is very committed to making sure we meet the needs of our residents. And I, I think that we've talked about as collaboratively as cities and as a region, we recognize that we need more housing. We need more housing at anything below 80% area median income. We are, I mean, we're not building enough of it across the state. We're not building enough of it in our immediate region. And when you have someone, have an individual or a family who is, has a couple, has a large hospital bill that was unplanned or, anything I mean life is so fragile that really anything can happen and I mean and many people are not do not have the financial wherewithal to survive a, or to figure out what to do if they're in crisis um, have some sort of unexpected uh, bill I mean whether it's because of a an ability to access transportation to get to work because uh, and can't rely on have a job that can't rely that doesn't you can't rely on public transit um there's a whole lot of other things that ca can cause someone to spiral so uh, my question is sort of largely and my thoughts are what have we learned and what has have you learned in terms of in, in the limited 
time that you've been, this organization's been in existence. But what have you learned in terms of some of the, the experiments, some of the um, things other cities and other uh, states are doing in terms of provide, I mean, I, I know I've know several cities have experimented with a sort of $1,000 voucher to, to residents, uh, sort of as a universal basic income, something like that. Um, or some other pro other programs that sort of really provide direct cash to people before they enter the before they lose their housing. What lesson? I mean, is there anything that you can share about the importance of keeping people in their homes versus getting them before and meeting them our residents there before they get into your system? I, I mean, we all know that keeping somebody housed is much easier than getting somebody rehoused. Um, and those investments are, are cheaper and, frankly, more humane. Um, so, yeah, I, I, we, we would agree with you on that. Um, you brought up kind of the um, universal basic income or that sort of those experiments have been going on. We, we had, we've been toying with the idea of trying to do something like that with, with the, in the youth space a little bit. Um, I don't know how far we've gotten on that. That was just an internal discussion. But I think it is... We are seeing more and more. I just saw a study last week, I can't remember where it was out of, um, where they showed that um, it reduced, what did it do? It improved people's lives, kept people housed, and I can't remember the exact outcomes, but they were really positive for the minimal investment it was um, for folks. Um, I'm not sure that answers your question, but it is something that we're interested in. And I do think uh, as much as we can get people upstream before they fall into the system is better. Um, some of that kind of falls outside of our area a little bit, right. but. It's a system problem that I think we all need to be tackling. I will also just want to add here that um, council does approve funding in other areas that um, uh, can be called rent assistance. It could be called um, prevention through HopeLink and um, some of the COVID-funded agencies, which we're going to come talk to council again here at the end of this month. Um, you know, along those basic income lines, it has been uh, a real resource to folks um, when they do have those unexpected bills and are able to come in and that will keep them housed when they have to, you know, make a decision between a grocery, feeding their kids or fixing the car that gets them to work that allows them to pay their rent. It's a really tough choice. And so um, one of the things that we really have encouraged agencies to also do when they're making those connections, whether it be Shoreline Community Care, and there's also resources at Center for Human Services, is they're looking at um, deeper things. So helping folks, because this is a one-time kind of situation, and so in terms of the financial, um, so what is going to help them next time? Uh, and I know, for example, internally with uh, our um, community resource specialist that's in our uh, division in CSD, she is um, Judy. She is magical at getting folks signed up for benefits. And so someone came to us looking for additional, you know, we have those grocery, um, Safeway grocery cards for folks, um, needed some more of those, and rather than kind of continue that, uh, was able to get them access to about $400 in, in uh benefits for food for their family, things that folks are entitled to and they just don't know how or it's challenge um, signing up, et cetera. So uh, as he mentioned, it's not really straight homelessness, but it is so close, closely tied to it in terms of, again, it's more important to keep people, if we can keep people in the housing they have, it, it can be, uh, it's a lot more effective, it's a lot less expensive to keep them, keep them housed. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, another, 
I, if you have the data, I, I've never seen this, but how, in recognizing everyone's sort of individual, everyone's circumstance if they're experiencing homelessness is, is unique. Uh, I'll just sort of state that. But for those individuals who start off, I mean, who may have had a job or had sort of largely full-time work or sort of hefty part-time work, um, maybe not 40 hours, how is there data that sort of shows how long they, that individuals can keep those jobs if they are um, if they have are in a position where they're without a home? I don't have that data. Um, I do know that a surprising number of folks, even unsheltered folks, are employed and are holding down jobs. Um, it is incredibly difficult for them to do so, and they don't have access to, to shelter and showers and places to wash your clothes and all that. But a surprising number of folks outside are employed um, and are able to hold down jobs. So, Yeah, no, I, I knew that many do. Okay. I just was wondering. If, yeah, I, I didn't know the number in front of me. I'm sorry. I mean, I'll see if I can find that for you. I wonder if that's something. I mean, I'm, I don't know. Probably if someone in your data yeah. says some of that, but I don't know how long, how well your data tracks someone mm -hmm. longitudinally as when they started and when they I think early, be, yeah. It would be really incredible to be able to speak to that, the average uh, length of time that someone is able to, you know, maintain full-time employment while experiencing particularly unsheltered homelessness, mm -hmm. so sleeping outside. Um, we do have, uh, if you look back at 2020, point-in-time count uh, releases, there's, there's indication about who, how many people indicated that they were uh, employed in the sheltered count, so enrolled in a shelter or a transitional housing program, uh, but not necessarily how long they were able to you know, maintain that employment or if it was impacted by their, their experiencing uh, housing instability. I think, as Nigel said, I, I, you know, anecdotally, I think we can we connect with a lot of people who are living in their vehicles or in sanctioned encampments or, um, you know, in unsanctioned encampments who have full-time employment, if not multiple jobs, um, and are just struggling with either move-in costs, uh, just given what they are, the gravity of moving into a place, um, or a variety of other things. There could be, a, you know, a million other things that somebody is challenged with that's keeping them in their current, you know, uh, housing situation and or lack thereof. So, but it's a very interesting point. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Councilor McConnell. Uh, thank you. I really want to commend this program because I actually volunteered last year. And uh, it is the most vulnerable people that come to, to the church. I don't see how any of them could hold down a job because of hygiene issues and things. And um, I thought I could just stay really on this, but it was really emotional for me to, to uh, be there. And I think for all of us who volunteered, you know, the, I watched the first night and just took my cues from other people. But sooner or later, we all brought new clothes for them and socks and, um, pizzas and things like that, that some of us were told maybe we shouldn't do. But, you, you know, you, you, to, to be homeless, these people are coming in out of the rain and they're sopping wet. And um, one story, the couple, they hide their stuff during the day and then it was stolen. So when they came in that night, 
they just really had the clothes that they were wearing. And I fortunately had some um, clothes. I said, I think these leggings will fit you. Um, and if they don't, if they're big enough, please take them. You know, and she gladly, I, I gave her several pairs. But, but I'm not an exception to this. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm the only one. And let me tell you, those volunteers, one day I didn't think I could drive up there. They picked me up. I was actually there the night the power went out. We thought, no big deal. We already did lights out. And we just, did, we really didn't want to, you know, what, we're going to put them out in the street? It was freezing that night. But I will tell you that the church had issues um, because people kind of at some point expected it to be open even when they didn't, weren't told it was open. Mm -hmm. So there was, you know, they were very, very accommodating. And, and that is put them in a little bit in a crisis mode as well. There was one night we actually, they had a function, but they were still okay letting us stay in the common area, which, you know, really was double duty for the church. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that between volunteers and the staff, it still was a real heavy lift. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that maybe we're doing something that's more stable because they deserve stability as well. So thank you. If you ever think that you need more money for housing this most vulnerable population, do not be afraid to ask the cities. And um, I mean, if I have to go pitch it to them, being firsthand, I mean, uh, th that's just an eye-opening experience. Um, the other thing, in, in general, this is really crisis management at such a basic level. Uh, so even to get them a bus somewhere when we weren't open, we, some people would actually be there to say we're not opening because we couldn't get enough volunteers because that was the other thing that they uh, changed because they um, would have maybe two people, but they decided two women was maybe not too smart. So there were times we couldn't open because we didn't have one of each gender. And so there were more women actually that volunteered than men, but that's probably because who wants to stay up all night, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so thank you for all you do and really the I wasn't surprised that it was the last year because it's uh, really crisis management at its basic with a lot of people who aren't being paid who just do this out of the kindness of their heart. And they can't because they're, they've got families at home too, but they, they, they can't turn away from, from a problem when they know they can, you know, a little bit will help them. So thank you very much. Any final questions or comments from council? I had a couple. Um, first of all, we've had more than zero applicants for the severe weather shelter, right? Yes. Okay. Phew. <laughs> um, and I appreciate all the data. It is tremendously interesting. What would help me the most is a completely different set. And that's the services requested as opposed to the services you can provide. Um, I.e., we had 300 applicants who we believe are ready for transitional housing without other supports. We had 20 beds. We had 100 applicants for permanent supportive housing. They will never be able to live on their own. We had zero beds. And I think those are the numbers we're gonna get. And then we can help you fill those gaps because we contribute a pittance compared to what we do to other programs. And that's not, I mean, that's no one's fault, so not staff's fault. But when we've got transportation folks in front of us, we're talking in the tens of millions. We've got parks folks in front of us, we're talking in the millions. When we've got 
homelessness services, we're talking the tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. And that's just not gonna cut it long-term. And the data that is most helpful when we all interact with citizens and we all interact with other electeds is we're only meeting 5% of the need in this area and 7% of the need in this area. Here's what we wanted to help. Mm -hmm. And I think you can count on Shoreline as long as Kenmore is willing to do its part. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had to. Yeah, no. um, but we are very cognizant. We're proud of the work we've done. But I think we are cognizant that we're not anywhere near there, and we are up to doing more, and I think our electorate is up to doing more. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anything else? Okay, go for it. Yeah. Actually, the most important question I had, did you say you provided with those emergency funds Section 8 housing for a 10-year span per applicant? Yes, for that's per household. That's what I thought. So, yes. That is going to reap benefits. Yeah, for 10 years, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. So that is awesome. Yeah, I think we also, Thank back you. to Councilmember Roberts' point about kind of lessons that we've learned, I would love to like expand at some point with you all on how, why that model was so successful. Um, don't need to necessarily do that in this moment, but um, really, really proud of all the work of the partners that were involved in the EHV program or the emergency housing vouchers. So yeah, essentially they're Section 8 vouchers, they're, they're 10 years. Uh, you can use them on the private market or in a, a subsidized setting. Most likely folks were finding housing in a private market setting. So it's huge, yeah, yeah. Thank you all for coming in, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up is agenda item, study item 8B, which is an update on the community transit swift blue line extension. We have Ms. Walters, uh, Mr. Dorji, and Mr. Silvera in person. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here with Community Transit to provide you with an update on the activities that Community Transit is currently doing, including the Blue Line extension. Uh, we're pleased that the service is going to be coming to the city of Shoreline, to the 185th uh, light rail station, and Chris Silvera, is Christopher, excuse me, will be providing an overview. Um, and he is nimble because the CEO, Rick Ilgen Fritz, unfortunately is ill. So he is doing the entire presentation, and uh, we hope that Mr. Ilgen Fritz is feeling better soon. Uh, so with that, I will turn it over to Christopher. Thank you. Good evening, folks. Uh, my name is Christopher Silvera. I'm the uh, manager of the BRT program at Community Transit, uh, BRT's Best Rapid Transit. Uh, and uh, for today, one moment. Okay. Uh, for today, I have, uh, I'm going to provide you guys with a quick update on what we're doing, some of the major efforts we're working on at uh, Community Transit. Uh, I'll uh, go into a little bit more detail about the Swift Blue Line ex extension that we're currently working on uh, with uh, some brief updates as well on the retrofits that we're working on for Swift and the onboard signage effort that we're undertaking as well. So uh, to start with, uh, we are in the process of um, uh, beginning a, uh, a transformation of our uh, service network. Uh, community transit in the past has been very much a commuter-based uh, um, system, uh, sending uh, our residents to 
jobs in downtown Seattle and Bellevue, uh, and uh, students to UW Bothell or to um, University of Washington. Uh, we are uh, transitioning away from that commuter-based network into a much more uh, uh, Snohomish-based, Snohomish County-based uh, local network with higher frequencies. So we are redistributing and redeploying those hours that used to go into express services into downtown Seattle in particular, and um, converting those into uh, our new, our new and existing local routes with, throughout Snohomish County that will lead to um, higher levels of, of peak service and uh, midday service in our network. So you can see here. On the left, we have uh, what uh, peak service looks like today in our network. These yellow lines are the two swift uh, lines that we have in our system. Uh, the blue are uh, some of the express services that we have. Uh, and in the 2024 and beyond network, you can see how that changes with yellow uh, being more than just swift. It's also a number of local routes going throughout uh, southern Snohomish County. And you can see uh, a vast ex expansion in the number of services that are operating at 20 to 30 minutes every uh, between buses. And uh, that was during peak. And then at midday, uh, the same sort of situation where uh, it's a pretty skim uh, network in terms of high frequency um, today um, beyond SWIFT. And uh, what we're moving to in the next uh, three years or so uh, uh, we're moving into a much more uh, dense network of high-frequency service uh, that goes not just during peak, but also throughout the midday as well, uh, which will uh, provide better service for our residents and uh, workers to be able to, to move around and uh, rely on transit, not just for uh, their commutes, but also just as part of their daily lives. Uh, another thing that we are working on at Community Transit is uh, shifting and transitioning our, uh, our vehicles into zero mission, a zero mission fleet. Uh, right now we have been embarking on a pilot phase where uh, we have uh, uh, a couple vehicles currently on base that we're uh, operating to, uh, to test the efficacy of uh, both uh, battery electric and um, hydrogen technologies. We'll be um, scaling that over the next uh, five years as we seek to uh, uh, build some small fleets with these services and then go moving into a full transition uh, from 2030 and uh, looking to 2044. So buses generally last about, every, about 12 years. Uh, so that 2044 transition is that timeline in which it would take for us to um, fully turn over our uh, non-zero emission fleet into um, fully zero emissions. And the last uh, major effort that we've been working on this year is our um, security program. We've been um, expanding that uh, significantly. I think we've added something like 15 transit security officers to our, um, to our agency in this year or over the past 12 months as well as a social worker that we've uh, also employed to um, help ensure that we uh, have the staff appropriate to provide a presence on our buses, as well as to uh, have a social worker that is there to uh, help connect people that we um, meet on our services to, uh, to, the, uh, to necessary resources available in our community. Uh, and 
uh, we continue to, to um, contract with our sheriffs as well uh, to, um, to also provide assistance. With regards to the Swift Blue Line extension, uh, we are, uh, as a reminder, um, continuing work that we started back in 2020. Uh, we began work uh, on, at that time, looking at various alternatives to uh, look at how we might get to the Shoreline North 185th station with Link Light Rail. And uh, at that time, we determined that we would take the Meridian Avenue um, corridor to get there. Uh, that is uh, something that will change in the future once uh, bat lanes are constructed by, as part of the city's uh, 185th multimodal plan. Um, at that time, we would then realign our service to uh, take Aurora Avenue south, um, connecting to the Shoreline Park and Ride, and then taking 185th east to the uh, new light rail station. And I also just want to note on this uh, particular uh, slide that uh, you can see on the right map uh, that there is a, an orange line there. That is uh, a project that's currently under construction, and we are anticipating uh, completing in the uh, uh, first half of next year, with uh, that providing another connection to the SWIFT network for the blue line um, that goes other than the uh, existing green line that we have at Airport Road. So uh, looking forward, we are um, anticipating on going to add for construction uh, on the uh, Blue Line effort at the end of this year and into early next year uh, with construction to follow soon after. Uh, we will be prioritizing the shoreline improvements as part of the construction in that first half of the year uh, to ensure that, that the extension is ready to open uh, when the Linwood Link extension starts up uh, to to clarify, the Swift Blue Line extension is expected to open at the same time as Link Light Rail's uh, extension to Linwood, so they'll be opening same day. Uh, so I think right now that's August 30th, if I'm not mistaken, of next year. And in the latter half of the construction period, uh, we'll be uh, working on the retrofits for uh, the Blue Line, but also for the Green Line. We're going to be um, uh, including both uh, systems. Uh, lines within that uh, retrofit effort. And uh, we will also be uh, working on the, uh, what was it? Oh, the improvements to the uh, uh, intersections on the Swift Blue Line itself. Uh, so we have a 148th in Lincoln Way where we're making some changes to the intersections to help improve speed and reliability and uh, we'll be making those changes as well in the <coughs> second half of next year. The intent is to get the extension done and give ourselves the time and uh, to actually complete the other items at a later date uh, as soon as the extension effort is first completed. So that's the first priority. With uh, more detail on the extension itself at Aurora Village Transit Center. We are planning on reorganizing the transit center to uh, to better facilitate Swift coming in and using it as not an end of line but a through service, because 185th Light Rail Station will be the new end of line. We're going to be going both directions at uh, Aurora Village, and so as opposed to having Swift come in and loop through the transit uh, the center. We'll be utilizing the southern 
uh, to Westbound Bay. Uh, at just south of the existing uh, Swift Bay so that the bus can continue just pulling off the street and then pulling back into the street and continue on its way west to Aurora Avenue. And what this requires is Metro to uh, shift its services around, uh, community transit shifting services around. We've agreed to this alignment where you can see in red here are the uh, areas that Metro will serve, the blue are those areas with, uh, with community transit. And uh, I have a little bit more detail on the next slide uh, to show you guys what these improvements might look like. So we're going to maintain the existing Swift station that's there. We aren't going to build a new one. Instead, we're going to add in a, uh, a new local shelter to replace the existing King County Metro shelter that you can see here. Uh, we'll also be making some updates to the concrete and, uh, and the uh, the platform area on the right-hand side here, you can see the yellow tactile uh, uh, paving that's there. And uh, we'll be also installing a, uh, a pole-mounted orca reader. So we're focused on making sure that those transfers between Swift and Metro are as clean and easy as possible. So part of that will be the fair payment system and, and making sure that folks can tap before boarding Swift. Normally you would do that at the station, but because the station's on the far side of the, uh, of the boarding area, we wanted to make sure that folks could tap easily. Remember that there is a place to tap before boarding the bus, uh, so that way they don't run into issues further down the line with our transit security officers or anything like that. Uh, and this is just, if the bus is there, someone's running, they can tap before they get on the bus as opposed to trying to run to the shelter itself, or the, the station structure itself, and then coming back. So focused on making things easy. Then at uh, Meridian Avenue, uh, so this is for the extension itself. Uh, again, we'll be going east on North 200th Street, going to Meridian Avenue, coming south, and then east on North 185th Street, so just to give you your bearings. Uh, on the right-hand side, you see the intersection of North uh, 200th Street and Meridian. Uh, the eastbound approach, which in this place is looking like it's coming it's going down, or pointing down. Uh, we will be making the uh, biggest changes there. Uh, currently, there are two lanes, a left turn bay and a right and through uh, lane. Uh, we're going to be converting that into one lane that uh, will serve all movements. And as a result of being able, of doing that, uh, we'll also be able to incorporate uh, bike lane extensions from what currently stops at Meridian Place just to the west. Uh, we'll extend those to Meridian Avenue itself. Uh, the intent of this improvement is to allow our buses to help them make those right turns. Uh, this gives them a wider berth to be able to make that right turn without encroaching on any lanes. And similarly, on Meridian Avenue, we're making changes to um, assist the buses making those right turn uh, movements. Uh, so we're pulling back the stop bars on the northbound approach at that intersection, again, to help with that, uh, that right turn and we'll be making some slight modifications to the center lines to um, shift them slightly over a, f a foot or two. Uh, and the intent on Meridian Avenue itself is to uh, make sure that even with the center lines shifting, that we aren't precluding uh, the possibility of the city coming in the future and adding in bike lanes on Meridian Avenue. And at 185th and uh, Meridian Avenue, uh, we're doing a lot of the same type of things, but we're just pulling back stop bars and shifting the center lines to help with the bus making the right turn from uh, the opposite direction going west from 
185th onto uh, northbound uh, Meridian. And then at uh, the uh, Link Light Rail Station itself, we are going to be uh, well positioned here. You can see on this graphic on the bottom left that we have two stations that we will be building at the light rail station. Um, so that's in that yellow box. Uh, we'll be at the street level just to orient you uh, if you aren't so familiar with the station. Uh, the, uh, the street level at 185th is at the top here. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys can see my cursor, but. Uh, and uh, so this is 185th, we'll be turning onto it. This is the roof of the garage, and we'll be looping around and coming into the bays. Uh, so two bays here. Uh, Metro has this uh, center island, uh, so that will be where they have their buses stationed. And uh, customers will be able to transfer to light rail by taking the pedestrian bridge and going down to the two platforms and for whichever direction that they're trying to head. Uh, on light rail. So pretty simple and easy. And we'll be installing these stations at the end of the year, um, early next year, uh, basically when Sound Transit's contractors give us the okay to, to go in and install them. So on upcoming Swift improvements, we are uh, working on the retrofits of our two lines, uh, two existing lines, the blue line and green lines, uh, with both of those will be uh, adding in a new standardized uh, wayfinding sy system. So we'll be adding in backlit signage that uh, takes the place of the existing externally lit station ID signs. So it's much easier to read at night. This is an example of one of our new stations that has the same, same type of backlit signage. Uh, we'll be including backlit uh, uh, marker top, iconic marker tops, uh, pylon sign tops. Uh, as well as uh, this new uh, next bus uh, LED sign that's full color. So today our uh, stations all have amber LEDs. These full color ones provide a lot more flexibility for us to not only show color and use that to our advantage, but also to uh, push out uh, flexible signage, uh, new uh, PSAs, information that we want to get out to passengers uh, more readily, more quickly, and uh, and also to share graphics or anything that might be more helpful than just a, a standard verbal uh, written message. Uh, the other advantage of these signs is that they have audible messaging associated with them, so we can actually use text-to-speech to provide messages to the public telling them that the next Blue Line bus to uh, Everett Station is leaving in four minutes. So that way, uh, for those that um, have visual uh, impairments, are able to also actively use our next bus information to know when and have confidence that the bus is at the correct station, that they're, um, they have a sense of when the bus will be coming, more than just using their handheld devices. And uh, lastly, an, another improvement on the wayfinding system that we've been working on is our onboard system. So we just, our board just recently approved um, uh, the uh, ability for us to award a contract to uh, add in these new onboard systems that uh, will provide our customers with not just the next stop that they're, they're arriving at. So if you go on a bus, usually that's all the only information you get. Uh, in this case, we'll be providing you know, the next several stops. We'll be able to provide the destination that you're headed towards. So that way you know you've gotten on the correct bus. Uh, if you didn't see the head sign of the bus when it was approaching. 
You'll also get which buses are, trans uh, what connections are available at the stops and when those connections are leaving, which is a really critical component that tells you, okay, I have next bus information for Swift, but I don't have it for my local bus uh, stop. This will provide you with that access point to tell you, give you that information, help you make those connections, know if you have time to mosey or if you have time to, if you need to book it to get to your, <laughs> to your transfer. We don't want people to miss their transfer by a minute or two because that's, as a transfer rider, that can be really annoying if you have like a, then a 20 minute wait or a 30 minute wait till the next bus. Uh, so these are uh, something I'm passionate about and something that I really want to see our um, customers have full utility of to uh, make sure that we're valuing their time uh, since that is something that's really important to our riders, making sure that uh, they are uh, given every opportunity to use our system as efficiently as possible. And, uh, and also I just want to note that because we're adding this third line to Swift, the orange line, um, that's going to be adding more complexity to our Swift network. Uh, having a triangle sort of network is really difficult to put out on a on signage uh, to just fit uh, geometrically on signage without creating a lot of confusion. We don't have our our fleet isn't just you know these buses are for Orange Line and Orange Line alone, or this in this fleet's only for Blue Line and Blue Line alone. They go across all the fleet, so we can't have unique signs for just the Blue Line or just the Orange Line or just the Green Line. Uh, so in order to juggle that um, that challenge, this uh, digital signage will help us be able to put to put on here. You know, you the you signed in the operator signed into the blue line or into the orange line or whatever line they're on, and the signage will be all be very reflective of <coughs> that information for them, and uh, and for the customers riding it. So with that said, I appreciate you guys' time and happy to answer any questions. Thank you. We're a little behind schedule, so if we could just bear that in mind with our questions. Questions or comments from council? Please. And I'm not trying to quell debate. I just want to point I'll make it really <laughs> fast. fast. Yeah. <laughs> Book it, not mosey. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, excellent presentation. Really impressed um, with all the improvements. Um, the one uh, question I have is, uh, you know, it's brought, been brought to our attention several times about safety issues. Mm -hmm. um, at the Aurora Transit Center, mm -hmm. and I'm like personally aware of, situ of some pretty scary situations that have happened to people like I know who were who were involved in um, the security, uh, mm -hmm. providing security at that at that location. And I'm kind of wondering, is that uh, is there, I know Metro is uh, subcontracting their own kind of security um, uh, company. Um, is is, some, is sound, uh, community transit doing something similar to to assure kind of that, that the customers feel safe coming to the transit center? Right, uh, thank you. So we don't have anybody specifically at Aurora Village since it's not our facility. That is Metro's facility. Um, however, that's where our TSOs they board our, they ride our buses and will ride it along along the Swift system to uh, maintain a presence. And so they are our opportunity to. Uh, uh, to provide more substantial assistance to our operators and to our customers. Uh, as I said, we've added 15, I believe, in the past year of uh, TSOs, so that uh, program is expanding to continue to make sure that we have a clear presence on our system. And uh, uh, that is something we're also being mindful of with the retrofits at Aurora Village Transit Center, and uh, we are investigating how we might be able to uh, uh, to get better visibility and monitoring the situation. Uh, we, there are some complexities in this with it being a metro facility and not ours, but 
uh, that is uh, a partnership that we need to make sure that we are leveraging to the greatest extent that we can to make sure that our passengers all feel safe. All right, thank you. Other questions or comments? Councilmember Mark. Thank you, really appreciate your, your presentation. Really appreciate what community transit is doing here. You've clearly given it a thought, trying to make something that works. Thank you. Thanks. Other questions or comments? Yeah. Well, I wanted to echo the two things other council members said. One is you're doing some really neat stuff, and I hope Metro incorporates some of it. It sounds like that's going to be a great system, especially impressed with the focusing on local service. Mm -hmm. That's something we're trying to do too, get people mm -hmm. to light rail rather than on a bus to downtown. But I also want to echo Councilman Ramsdell's comments about Aurora Village. That's one of our crime hotspots, and we're having a heck of a time with it. And it's falling on our patrol officers. We are doing our best, and we're bugging Metro a lot. But to the extent you have resources, we could use them. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem mostly with folks who are hanging out there catering to bus or catering to bus passengers coming through. Yeah. We also have problems with restrooms there. And the mm -hmm. city provides them in a nearby park. Some folks use them. Some folks use the bushes surrounding. Mm -hmm. I don't know if restrooms are part of your model, but at a major facility like that, I'm hoping you'll consider it or consider helping us pay some of the maintenance costs for ours because that is, that is a significant expense for us. Yeah, I can tell you that uh, restrooms are not a part of what we're planning at uh, ABTC. That um, I, I think again, that kind of falls onto into Metro's portfolio rather than ours. But uh, uh, but it's it's definitely something that affects us too as as an agency when we see you know uh, issues at the at Aurora Village and. It's, something that we need to make sure that we are working with Metro if, solving. And if I may, I would like to over here. Uh, we're talking to Metro about that right now, and I, I, we can provide an update. I, I believe that there's um, there's a plans coming to address having that provided at that location. Okay. Um, and I think I'll just get the specifics and we can provide that update. Okay, thank you. Yeah. But if community transit can keep that, I mean, restrooms are not really in anybody's portfolio. And so what we end up with are vast swaths of urban mm -hmm. landscape without them. Yeah. And we all pay the price mm -hmm. for that. It's fair. Any other questions or comments? Thank you so much for coming in. And Thank Mr. Dorji, nice you. to see you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Next up is our final study item, study item 8C, which is the discussion of the 2024 Surface Water Master Plan. I believe Mr. Featherstone is presenting, and uh, along with another staff member. I guess I'll start with saying thank you very much to Council for having us here tonight for your time and your attention. I'm super excited to be kicking off the Surface Water Master Plan and it's been a long time since I've been in this seat in person, so um, it's exciting to be here in person. Um, so I'm John Featherstone, I'm the Surface Water Utility Manager. I've been at the city for a little over nine years and I've been in my current role for over four years. With me tonight is Margaret Ailes from Brown and Caldwell, Cal <laughs> Brown and Caldwell our consultant team. Yep, thanks. thanks, Margaret. Yep, so I'll be giving the presentation. I'll be um, cognizant of our time. I know there's a lot going on tonight, so I don't want to take up too much more time than needed. Um, and I'll be talking, and Margaret will be answering any questions related to our consultant team that might come up. 
So just brief overview of our presentation for context and for uh, as a refresher for council members who were here during the 2018 master plan update, I'll be providing just a little bit of surface water utility history, stormwater regulations, surface water master planning and surface water management fees. I'll be pivoting then into discussion on the current master plan update, which I'm calling the 2024 surface water master plan or this or the swamp <laughs> for short. Um, we'll be over going over our approach and schedule, public engagement and key topics kind of mixed in with the step-by-step -step process and then ending with next steps and questions. And I just wanted to share this slide because this is really the reason for why we need stormwater management on a citywide level. This is the old Sears site and it's still, it looks a little different, but it pretty much looks like this. Uh, so once this was a forested area and now it's uh, buildings and pavement. And when you take that forested surface, vegetated surface, and you replace it with pavement, you generate a lot more surface water. Stormwater, you generate dirtier stormwater and that needs to be managed on a citywide level. So that's why the utility exists and it drives a lot of our work. This is a, a common public engagement graphic that just shows some um, sources, common sources of urban stormwater pollution. Um, and that stuff frequently goes right into our local streams and uh, other natural water bodies. So that's the utility is around to protect uh, those water bodies and also protect us from those water bodies sometimes. <laughs> when, uh, this is a flooding uh, that happened south of Ronald Bog uh, in 2007 and the utility has implemented a number of projects since then to reduce the frequency of and severity of this kind of flooding. And uh, just another last picture of the Wise. This is Bone Creek. It's a creek that is still pristine and beautiful in spite of all of the urban stormwater impacts that have been happening for decades. And it's just a reminder of what we're trying to protect and improve for generations to come. It's not just now, it's the future too. <clears throat> so the surface water utility was established in 2005 for all of these goals. This is a picture of the TMI manage, and it's not just these folks who are working uh, all the time on surface water stuff. There's other people at the city, um, but this is really the core team that I work with. Uh, one of our main objectives is regulatory compliance, which I'll get into shortly. And we also have goals uh, above and beyond regulatory compliance related to reducing flooding, improving water quality, and protecting our habitat of our natural water bodies. And just to give a little visual flavor of what we do, this is, uh, we have capital programs which install what I call gray, gray infrastructure, which is the pipes, the catch basins, vaults. We have green uh, projects which in restore habitat and plant plants to manage stormwater. We respond to spills and water pollution. We have a street sweeping program, all the operation and maintenance for all of our public stormwater systems, as well as water quality sampling for our natural water bodies, public engagement, and yeah, that includes tree planting sometimes. So. That's just a little flavor of what we do. <clears throat> As I mentioned, regulatory compliance, and I, there's so many complicated words and <laughs> acronyms to share here, but basically in the Clean Water Act was really where all of this started in 1972 on the federal level. It trickled down, so to speak, on the, to the state level with these national pollution, national pollution discharge elimination systems, and PDES, that's what it stands for. I probably won't say that again because in this part of the state, we call it the Western Washington Phase Two permit. I'm just gonna to refer to it as the permit or regulatory compliance in shorthand. That really drives a lot of our programs. And you can see in these blue boxes, um, some of our longstanding programs related to permit compliance in the utility include planning, public education, mapping, spill response, managing construction stormwater, 
managing permanent uh, stormwater impacts from redevelopment, as well as operations maintenance for all of our public assets as well as private assets required by the permit. As of this year, we had a brand new program for the permit called Source Control, which is about uh, preventing pollution at the source before it happens. So permit keeps us busy. <laughs> and this is uh, the next permit that's coming out. So our current permit, uh, the permits are issued in five-year cycles, and the, it's about to end our current permit. It will be up in July of next summer. And August, we'll have a new permit, and there's currently a draft uh, a formal draft available. So I was just looking at that just a minute ago. And uh, the orange boxes represent existing permit programs from that last slide, which are being changed with new requirements. And a couple things, just I'm not going to read all of them or point them all out, but we have tree canopy that the permit now wants us to be tracking and setting goals for, which is a brand new thing for stormwater compliance. Also street sweeping. We've been, street, we've been sweeping our streets for a long time, but it hasn't been required by the permit. So those are a couple new just the tip of the iceberg requirements. Uh, the red box represents a whole brand new program, which is a stormwater retrofits program. Uh, the larger cities around Washington State have been doing this for a while, but we will be now required to install uh, retrofit facilities to treat previously untreated public stormwater. So keeping us busy again. <clears throat> so the, the surface water utility uses surface water master planning process to ensure that we're meeting all of the surface water management needs in the city. And uh, that's not just permit compliance. That includes all of our projects and programs. And our initial surface water master plan was completed in 2005 with the inception of the utility. And we've typically updated them in six-year cycles. So we've had updates in 2011, 2018, and now this one uh, for 2024. The last master plan update in 2018, just as a brief refresher, reviewed our levels of service and updated them made recommendations for 15 new or enhanced programs, and we largely have implemented those as planned. Um, some of those new and enhanced programs include uh, improvements to permit compliance, system inspections, maintenance and replacement for failing assets, and solving drainage and water quality issues. The master plan also recommended 25 capital projects to be advanced, and we've generally advanced those more or less as planned, including uh, some notable ones that we completed, like Hidden Lake Dam Removal, um, pump station 26 replacement in the 185th light rail area, and a bunch of smaller projects to fix defective pipes and address localized drainage issues. The 2018 master plan also completed a swim fee rate study to fund all of that work. And as you can see, here's a six-year uh, rate study, and we've implemented these fees as, as planned right up to 2023. So the, the increases were relatively large coming out of the master plan, 27 and 15% respectively, the first two years, and it's tapered off to 5% annually since then. <clears throat> Those swim fees provide revenue for all of our utility and surface water management projects and programs. Our revenue was $8 million, roughly, in 2023. And those fees are set up as proportional to how much stormwater a property generates. Our current rate structure has seven tiers. At the bottom is a single family uh, type of property for a flat fee of $330 per parcel on up to commercial and other non-single-family par parcels, which are $5,000 per acre for very heavy development. And uh, as you can imagine, a larger property that's heavily developed, uh, those fees can approach or exceed $100,000 a year. So that's, that's the uh, very fast summary of the background. And I'm going to pivot now into our current 
update and talk about some critical success factors and how we plan on doing this thing and what we've been up to so far. So early on, we have identified some critical success factors for the, the project. Uh, one is balancing our priorities. Uh, I'll get into that in a little bit later, but there's a lot of priorities to address potentially and limited resources as always. So we need to try to pick our priorities. These recommendations need to be timely because we intend to feed the 2024 master plan recommendations into the 2025-26 biennial budget process and the corresponding CIP update. So that will be starting next summer. So we have about nine to 10 months to make those recommendations. And to get there, we've developed this uh, stepwise approach. Uh, this is my cartoon, <laughs> so I'm not going to read through every step. I have some slides to explain step by step, but this is just a visual to show the, the sort of blue boxes steps are really intended to be the task work that the consultant team and the city staff will be working on closely together. The yellow arrows indicate that we're using public engagement processes uh, for, during each step to feed into the green bubbles, which are council discussions, and we've planned five discussions. This is the first one. So that first green bubble is tonight, wrapping up step one. We have subsequent discussions coming in about six months for February and March, um, and then we'll be coming back again in June and then again at the end of the year, and I'll explain more on what each of these updates is going to be about. So step one is what we've just finished, and that's really organizing the project and establishing our approach. This has been going on, it feels like a long time for me already. It really started probably in January of this year, and a lot of that involves scoping our contract with Brown and Caldwell, which really turned into a work planning exercise because of the way we're sharing the work. And a lot of, um, recently we've transitioned into gathering data for um, really sort of framing up our tasks that we're gonna do, as well as some early public engagement and engagement planning. What did that public engagement look like early? Um, sticker boards. <laughs> we attended, uh, surface water staff attended a number of public events this summer, including the Juneteenth celebration, Celebrate Shoreline, Shoreline's Farmers Market, and several neighborhood association events to really just put a finger on the pulse of what the community thinks about surface water and what some of those community priorities are. This is not a scientific poll. People could use as many stickers as they wanted, uh, but generally we got stickers on natural drainage systems, which are managing stormwater using plants and trees, depaving, which is removing underutilized pavement, reducing pollution to natural water bodies, climate resilience, and stream restoration. So that's just a few of the kind of early returns on that informal outreach. What we're currently doing with our consultant team is creating a public involvement plan, and that's our formal outreach strategy. And uh, in recognition of Shoreline's Commitment to Equity and Social Justice, the 2024 Master Plan will be um, engaging a broad range of voices in the city uh, with a focus on diverse communities which may have not uh, been represented uh, or very well represented in previous planning efforts for the utility. Uh, so we're really taking extra steps that haven't been done before in master plans to engage those communities, including working with community consultants. We have our first meeting actually coming up this Wednesday. Um, and we're also doing some geospatial mapping with census data and utility data to see if there's any trends uh, on a geospatial level. And we'll be working all of this into our formalized plan for the next steps two, three, and four. And that is our next step number two, which we're really launching right about now. This will be from now until next spring. And we're going to be looking at the service levels which were um, selected in the last master plan, reviewing them. I think we have a meeting coming up really soon with our consultant team to get going on the service levels 
and then we'll be really, the service levels set an overarching set of goals and uh, what are our priorities, what are we trying to accomplish, how do we want to accomplish that, what do we consider successes uh, on a utility level and a surface water management level. We'll be following that up with project program and policy updates and again we've already done some of the legwork for this work so we just kind of need to crank it out. We'll also be doing the bulk of our public engagement so we have a survey coming out and we'll be working also on these uh, focus groups to reach with uh, diverse communities better than what we've done in previous planning efforts. So really lots of work coming up over the next five or six months under step two. Some of the key topics that we intend to come back to council and talk to you about in February and March and we'll be doing our homework before then and talking with the public about are these six items and I'll just go through these super quickly. Um, the, really the first one is kind of like the in some ways, it's the biggest enchilada of them all. It's all of our project and program priorities. As mentioned, really, our regulatory compliance is not optional, but all of our projects and programs outside of regulatory compliance are really based on what we've decided as a city are is our service level priorities. So some of these things have in the past included flooding reduction, drainage improvements, water quality protection. Um, other priorities that we've taken on more recently include addressing failing infrastructure, and of course, there are always other priorities out there too, like uh, protecting and restoring habitat, green stormwater infrastructure, um, and some other operational programs like water quality monitoring and maintenance. So we need to really find what our priorities are and how do we want to allocate our staffing and budgetary resources across these different objectives. <clears throat> Next up will be our, our swim fee structure, uh, which we'll be reviewing for an array of potential changes. Um, for our swim fee structure and credits to assess the proportionality and equity of fees and potentially look at new credits and new revenue streams. Equitability of service is another important one and we'll be exploring how to assess and best improve upon the equitability of our services, including reviewing our current model for service requests, which is how we receive our reports typically of flooding and drainage issues and water quality problems. Moving on to climate resilience, we will be investigating options for the utility to increase and maximize the stormwater uh, system resilience to climate change and the expected impacts from that. Um, further down the list, we also have the re redevelopment needs. As mentioned, we have some pretty intensive redevelopment areas around our station, uh, light rail station sub areas, and we will be evaluating options for funding and implementing improvements to the public stormwater system as driven by redevelopment needs. Uh, last but not least, we'll also be analyzing our funding models to determine the best long-term uh, and most sustainable utility approach, uh, particularly with regard to our capital program. Okay, that's step two. Step three is really finding all these uh, priorities, packaging them up with various service levels and rates. So you imagine a high, medium, low kind of approach. So a high service level would be, let's be more ambitious about what we want to do. It would typically require higher rates to deliver that. A low service, model, uh, service level may be, let's do the bare minimum, that's sort of acceptable, and that would be lower rates. So we'll be taking the priorities identified in step two, packaging them at different service levels and rates, similar to what the last master plan did, and coming back to council in uh, the second quarter of 2024 in June to talk about that. And the results of those efforts will be trying to select a service level and rate package that we can then feed into our budget process in the summer. Step four will be writing all this up in our document, um, taking the last half of 2024 to really flesh this out. We'll have a draft and final 
plan and come back to council near the end of the year to share this and also share it out with our public engagement processes. So looking ahead, we're again at step, about to launch step two, about to really start our most intensive public engagement and task work. And uh, we'll be planning on coming back to council next in February and talking about some recommendations on priority topics. So that really concludes the presentation. Thank you for your time. And I really wanted to just cover information for the council and open things up to questions or guidance as council sees fit. Questions or comments from council? Councilmember McConnell. I just want to say that surface water and water running amok is very boring for many people. But <laughs> having been on a water committee, it's also uh, very important that we control it. And thank you for being with us for this many years. Uh, when I was first on the council, we did have a lot of flooding problems because we were a relatively new city, and so we don't see that kind of flooding. But it's an ongoing problem to uh, not have a problem, especially with all the rezoning. And thank you for probably keeping an eye out on all that density that's coming, coming through because it's going to look like Sears, and that water needs to go safely somewhere else and, and be treated and all that. And other than that, um, I did enjoy my time on the water committees, but it uh, takes a certain kind of person to be excited about water, right? <laughs> <laughs> Councilmember Mork, <laughs> thank you. Councilmember Roberts. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Uh, thank you for the presentation. I appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate the public outreach that you have done and the outreach that you plan to do. I, uh, reading through the report, I do have a couple questions um, sort of on a bigger picture is what is our responsibility in terms of collaboration with neighboring jurisdictions? So we have some basins that flow into other jurisdictions. At what point, I mean, is it our response, would it be that sort of top end city to manage and mitigate water before it goes into a neighboring jurisdiction? Yeah, thank you for that question. There's, uh, yeah, I may need to research this a little further to see if there's a legal obligation, but my understanding is in our typical practices, uh, it is an informal arrangement that we uh, coordinate with our neighbors. We have quite good relationships with our neighbors to the East and North, so we have a lot of interactions with Edmonds, Mount Lake Terrace, Lake Forest Park. We have a regional forum that we participate with them in, and Lake Ballinger Forum. Uh, so we have pretty good collaboration and back and forth with those jurisdictions. Seattle is honestly a little bit more monolithic, and it's typically they contact us if they have something that's going on. Um, but generally, it's um, an informal arrangement, I would say. Okay. Uh, I'm just sort of thinking, I mean, I know that our neighbor to the east often sort of says that some of their problems come upstream and, I, but I mean, it's not, I mean, I know legally and if it was, we do okay, but yeah, I know it's cumulative effects in many ways. Uh, the second question is about rates. I mean, ultimately this is, you suggested this is where rubber meets the road in terms of, uh, what the community wants. Um, but I'm looking at, I mean, specifically, I'm looking at sort of our understanding of single family. Um, the legislature, as you're well aware, I'm sure everyone's aware now, by now, I mean, the legislature changed our thinking about um, 
single what was what is currently single family neighborhoods and now is uh, generally requiring up to four units on a parcel uh, how that gets defined is going to be another part of the comprehensive plan but how in thinking about sort of that change in the legislature um, the fact that we are already seeing a lot more ADUs built how do you anticipate your, some of your thinking in terms of rate making and rate structuring when that sort of single family conception which was a very easy calculation you are single family or not in terms of our zoning code really is not no longer there I that's uh, I think that underscores the timeliness of reviewing our structures and I would uh, Without going off on too much of a tangent, I would say our current structure has a, a preset to just a few boxes, right? And one of the alternatives that we can consider is really using a proportional, uh, finer-grained scale to apply how much hard surface does a property really have, even if it's single-family or let's say it's uh, it's zoned single-family but it has a bunch of uh, townhomes or something like that on it then it would really that would cease to be a factor and it would really just be about how much does surface does this have that's generating stormwater runoff and then it becomes more of a data management question so then we have to maintain the the gis aerial data and make sure that that's reflective of reality so it's arguably it would be a more resources to shift to that model but the rates potentially would be more representative of what the property is generating as stormwater, which is my intention, my understanding of what the intention behind a swim fee is. And do we have, I mean, within the context of this planning and completion of the study, are there the resources there to at least to do not only evaluate, but sort of go into sort of second level analysis of, okay, how much, how many, how much resources it could take to actually transition to this new type of uh, fee that, structure. Yes, that will be part of our analysis. We have the data already for hard surfaces. So it really is then about feeding that data into an alternative model and administering that model and working with our King County billing services or evaluating alternative billing processes. So that will be part of what we come back to the council with in February, I, I would expect. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Can some more? I am enthusiastic about stormwater. Thank you. Yeah, me too. What's, what's wrong with you? <laughs> we love water. Yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, King County is obviously doing an equivalent kind of study. And uh, I happen to see their presentation that they had prepared. And they, are, they have four goals that they're really pushing. One of them is uh, creating stormwater parks. And uh, they showed areas on their map where they showed their, their goal, of course, is to reduce pollution getting into the sound. They showed pictures in their map of interested places for stormwater parks. Shoreline has polluted water. Shoreline had little areas. I hope you're considering it. I'm real, and it sounds like grant money is there, so uh, all in. <laughs> um, that the public involvement is so critical. Thank you so much for prioritizing that. I think that is uh, really important to get the, the public involved with this. 
you know, climate change really has made a difference with our precipitation. The rain is so much more intense than it used to be, and that, uh, you know, <laughs> that commercially you have to increase your drain sizes, your roof drain sizes, because it's just not the same. And that is magnified hugely with what you're doing. So uh, I encourage you, in addition to what uh, Councilmember Roberts was questioning you on, on the more granular way to think about it, also include um, credits for people doing smart things. So if people are, are diverting stormwater from getting into bad places, um, you know, I think they should get some, some a credit for that. And really looking forward to you coming back doing great work, thank you. Deputy Mayor. Um, I'm really curious about projects and upcoming projects. And um, I, I scanned through even in some of the links even. I wonder, is there a, um, I guess it wouldn't be a heat map, but like a saturation map of the city? And what are the, what are the really wet zones? And, and so then when it, I would think I don't know that I've worked on a stormwater project prioritization list in the past, but I think that's something I'd be really interested in, and I'm frankly newly interested in because I've um, I just got to tour a flooded neighborhood home, uh, I mean, in my Ridgecrest between 10th and 11th and 175th um, mm -hmm. area. And apparently there's like a little, there's like a little stormwater like area back there that I didn't know existed. So anyway, I think there's a lot more going on in Shoreline than I realize. Sometimes I think I know everything happening in the city and clearly I don't because that was a complete surprise to me. Um, so I guess that's just a request that I'd love to uh, be part of um, just seeing what, you know, how are we how are we selecting these projects? How are we prioritizing prioritizing them? Um, where are the really, really wet spots that need help in Shoreline? Um, and then, a, and then a nod because I think what the work that was done at the pump station is beautiful, and I'm also very excited because there's another one happening on 175th and 70th, no, 15th and 170th. Mm. That's the right numbers. <laughs> um, that you know, these are just really ugly lots right now, and have an opportunity to be educational and um, activated and useful all at the same time. So I'm really excited to see the work that you're doing and thank you for your presentation. Other questions or comments? All right, I have just a couple. Um, for, for starters, I mean, thank you for all the work you do. Um, thanks in large part to Mr. Ellington. I think we're all thinking about performance indicators and deliverables, and that's what I really want to see in the PROSA plan. You mentioned a bunch of things that are very, very important to me personally more trees, habitat restoration, impervious surface reduction. I'd like to see some targets for that, and then some deliverables. And, and what I mean is something similar to what we have in the PROSA plan, which is, you know, we need more parkland. We need more parkland in these neighborhoods specifically. So our target is to get X acres in Hillwood and Westminster Triangle and everywhere else. I'd like to see that with our target is plant this many trees or preserve this many acres of existing trees or whatever. And I would love to see targets and deliverables for reducing the parking lots, particularly on the developments that have had, that are subject to very old stormwater regulations that are vested to those. Um, and I tell you, going to Fred Meyer is one of the most depressing experiences. Not, not the shopping experience, shopping was fine. But you get out of that parking lot in summer and you bake, and you get out in winter and you wade through a sheet of water 
and I presume it's going to a storm drain that goes through a concrete pipe that eventually goes to the sound. Let's see what we can do with, with those things. And we may need to not just offer incentives and regulations, because we can't regulate much with vesting, but we may need to spend some money in partnership with them to, to, to get some public land out of it and, and restore it. My only final comment is I would be cautious focusing too heavily on stormwater fees proportionate to impacts, and that's because of the unintended economic effects of that. Most lower-income people tend to live on smaller properties with more impervious surface per lot size, and they don't necessarily have the resources, whether they're renters or whether they're owners, to spend a ton of money digging up a parking lot and putting in a rain garden, whereas folks in the highlands sure do. Um, but the folks in the highlands have the ability and need to be rewarded for that. They also have the ability to pay the fees. And I think our fees are quite high, and I don't have a problem with that as long as they are A, equitable, and B, we're seeing some measurable progress, not just to maintain the existing pipes and puddles, but to get us to, to somewhere. Right? We're the, Shoreline is the leader in a lot of areas, like TOD. I would love to see us become a leader in stormwater, and I think you've got a will up here to doing that, and I'd encourage you to go ahead and be bold, but make sure it's something that when we get you know, buttonhole at the grocery store, we can say, well, here's the seven projects that this is going to fund, rather than we're really going to make it good. Right. Any other questions or comments from council? All right, thank you so much. Um, and we are now going to recess into executive session for a period of 20 minutes pursuant to RCW 42.30.1101B um, to consider the selection of a site or the acquisition of real estate by lease or purchase. Are we expected to take final action, Ms. King? We are not expected to take final action. Thank you. There's two boxes and neither is checked. Important <laughs> <laughs> box.
The executive session is concluded and we are adjourned. Thank you. Yeah. Felt long.